Hello and welcome to another edition of Romaniacs, the Brexit podcast for proud Ramonas, saboteurs and enemies of the people. My name is Ian Dunt and I'm the editor of politics.co.uk and also the author of Brexit, What the Hell Happens Now? My usual host, Dorian, is not here. He has been captured by Brexit supporters and is only being released next week. But in the meantime, I'm joined by Peter Collins. And in a previous life, I was business editor at The Economist, but now I'm a keen and frankly rather anxious observer of the unfolding Brexit spectacle. Every week we aim to give a fresh perspective on Brexit that isn't distorted by false balance because we're Romaniacs and we don't care who knows it. The plan is to entertain, inform and maybe cheer ourselves up as we enter the vortex of the unknown. Well, we had a pretty good response to our show last week. Azim Datardina. Azim, if I have just missaid your name, please do write in and tell us. I think the chances of that are probably really rather high. Said to us, uh, thank you for doing this. That is so valuable to raise the quality of the debate. We're very glad to be of service, Azim. Uh, Sarah Bahia. Sarah, if I have missaid your name, do feel free to write in. I think the chances of that are also similarly high. Uh, said, oh, you'll like this either because you like it or because you like getting enraged. Either way. And at Scylla Noir, I guess that's a joke on Scylla Black, I, I don't know, said, I listened to the first five minutes of the Romaniacs cast. If there was another referendum tomorrow, I would 100% vote to leave. There's no rule, by the way, that says we can't read these out in silly voices. Uh, so there you go. Another satisfied customer. OK, well, later in the show, we're going to be choosing the biggest Brexit moments in the election so far and wondering if Brexit really is going to make a difference to this week's vote. And we'll be finding out there's so much more to UKIP than Brexit, apparently. And um, what's it going to do now that Theresa May is giving it all it wants? And joining us here in the studio, we have our first guest, Roz Taylor of the London School of Economics. She co-edits the very useful LSE Brexit blogs and also democraticaudit.com. She's ex-Guardian, which means that she's uh, welcoming our little metropolitan elite media bubble and uh, is very generous of her to come in. Uh, so, Roz, uh, where are you on the enemies of the people saboteur scale? Remainer, Ramona, Skeptic? Uh, I put myself probably on one to ten from uh, Brexit to uh, Ramona. Nine point nine, pretty pretty high, pretty high. Find find me one good thing to say about Brexit, and I will say it. Um, that's a, that's a good challenge, actually. I think I, I'm going to try and take that up. The, the, the one good thing I can think of, I can think of two. Mm-hmm. First one is that people now seem to care about where their goods come from. Mm-hmm. So previously, basically everyone was unaware of how this works, including myself. Now it's sort of you know, basically trade rules are cool. I mean, that if I put it that way, it sounds like a terrible thing about Brexit. But yeah. nevertheless, there's something vaguely useful. And if, if I'm being really cruel, I would say it's a good thing. And hold on here, because it sounds boring, that the common agricultural policy is reformed. Because mm. it mm. was a really bad policy. And we do, and it's going to be very bad. The farmers aren't going to like it. They voted for Brexit, but they're not going to like it. But we need to reform it. So that's one thing. There you go. I found it. Um, yes, indeed. So you've been doing, obviously, sort of anchoring down lots of the academic work. The key question that seems to, to be brought up a lot, especially around the expert stuff, is, you know, are people who are, have expertise or even, you know, sort of intellectuals as well, are they incapable of arguing with any sense of passion and, and emotion and things? And have they really sort of lost their status because it's all been this very grey, statty world of acting as if evidence is the only consideration in any argument? They're not incapable of it, but it's not what they're used to doing. Uh, it's not part of what academics do. You know, you don't get any, you don't, you don't get any credit for being passionate in your PhD. Mm. Uh, yeah. And 
One of the problems was that it was possible to be passionate about Britain in quite a kind of vague way, but nobody dared to be passionate about Europe because that was just embarrassing. And uh, how could you possibly be passionate about being you know, forced to listen to Ode to Joy and, and European ideas? <laughs> but seriously, there was no drive to foster a sense of European unity, of European pride, because they were afraid that would be such a turn-off for the electorate. And maybe it would. But I think for about 25, 30% people would be okay with that if you put it in the right way. But it just seems so uncool to say that, that people didn't. I, I think that's exactly right. And it, you, could have, you could have spun it, if you like, from a conservative direction to say, you know, we won the jolly old war. Um, Churchill wouldn't have w- walked away from Europe in 1939. We should be in there reforming the camp, common agricultural policy and so on mm-hmm. and so on. And it could have been framed with a lot of passion to be Britain... Mm-hmm ought to be in there. We're supposed to be a leading nation, God damn it, and all that kind of stuff. But it wasn't. Nobody really did that. And therefore, sort of talking vaguely about communities, it begins to sound a bit kumbaya, doesn't it? You know, it sounds a bit, the danger is it sounds a bit soppy if you don't put it in that kind of positive, yeah. slightly nationalistic way. And I suppose there, there's, the, there's the clue that people who might be inclined to put it that way uh, you know, such as me, would be a little bit disinclined to, to sound nationalistic because actually is a, a key part of being British is that we, we we were beginning to get over being nationalistic before all this came along. Yeah, that's interesting. And I, feel, I have quite a lot of personal discomfort with that as well. Like I, I feel very patriotic. I'm very averse to the word nationalism because to me that sounds like the place where patriotism joins politics and that never seems a very healthy place to be i mean patriotism is is basically a love story it's you know just how do you feel about your country and the place that you live in what is there to admire and it's really not that different to the way you might feel about a friend when you go to nationalism you suddenly anchor all that stuff down in policy solutions and that seems to me very very dangerous because then all of a sudden you have conversations about who's invited who's part of that and that discussion sort of seems to go a little bit wrong and yet we have been stuck, haven't we, with this sort of thing, this feeling like liberals aren't able to voice their sense of pride in their country. And lots of time it is there and you see it in the result of the election that their pride is there by virtue of how hurt they were, you know, when the country started to go in a different direction. And that seems something that would be quite useful if we could become a little bit more comfortable with that kind of conversation. We'll be talking more to Roz about some of the fascinating findings on the LSE Brexit blog a little later. But first, let's have our quick roundup of this week's Brexit news. OK, Ian, what's been happening this week on the Chessington World of Adventures roller coaster that is Brexit? Right. Well, yeah, well, we have the Brexit relaunch by virtue of general election, which is that Theresa May has had a not particularly wonderful time over the last week. I don't know if you noticed that. Uh, she picked a fight with dementia and she picked a fight with foxes. And it turns out that she lost both of those. Um, and so now we're returning to Brexit, all under Lyndon Crosby's iron rule of and I think a very sensible one from their perspective, which is to say at the core of this election is a voter thinking, who do I want going into those negotiations, Theresa May or Jeremy Corbyn? That seems sensible to me on the basis that I think, you know, Theresa May has been extraordinarily strategically inept, has thrown away basically every leverage she had and failed to neutralise any of the advantages that the opposing team had, and yet would still be far superior to Jeremy Corbyn going into those negotiations. So it seems a very sensible proposition to put to the public. And that's really what they're going for. And I think that's pretty much what we can expect until polling day. Indeed. And did you notice in the uh, Channel 4 Sky News debate, Theresa May got a round of applause every time she said, no deal is better than a bad deal. 
uh, even though I think everybody around this table would disagree with that. Uh, the point is she kept getting a round of applause and Paxman kept giving her opportunities to say the same thing again. So it's an, it's an open goal, isn't it, You know, to be hardline and say, I'll be harder line than Jeremy Corbyn. So you can't blame her, especially with the polls narrowing quite, quite significantly in the past few days, for going for the one thing that gets her a round of applause every time from the voters. It's true, although I don't know how much... I, I don't even think it's worthy of being given enough respect to call it like an argument for a hard Brexit. I think really what it is, is it's just a a tonal expression. You know, it really just sort of, it speaks on an emotional level, a general intuitive emotional oomph that you get from something and people clap it because they think it sounds, you know, vaguely sort of robust. But really in terms of thinking through what might follow from that, I'm not sure that they've done that. I mean, Ros, do you think they have? No, I think think actually the key to this uh, election so far, to this election campaign is in looking at what fundamentally ended up winning the referendum. And that was partly immigration, but ultimately uh, it was the 350 million on a bus for the NHS. Mm. And that was what actually, if you ask a lot of people, that was what tipped them in favour of leave. Now, I think there were all kinds of other emotions going on that maybe they didn't want to talk about as well, but that was a big sell. And if you look at this election campaign so far... Corbyn is doing better in the polls. That's not because he's got a manifesto now and people are not just looking at Corbyn. They're looking at what his policies are. And one of those policies is to give a lot more money to the NHS and to uh, you know not take away p- uh, kids' school dinners, as, as uh, Theresa May intends to. And people like that. They really like that. And ultimately, that's what they want to hear. I think just as much as we want a hard Brexit and you know take it to Europe and show who's, who's boss, they like that very much. And I think that's the key now. If if she didn't realise that it was going to be domestic issues, ultimately, that drove some of this election anyway, then she was a fool. And, and the point is that election campaigns, all politicians should know that once they get rolling, they take on a momentum of their own. That you can't mm. say this election is going to be about X and it's not going to be about that. You just can't because stuff mm. happens on the on the campaign trail and you can't, even with all the army of spin doctors that all the politicians have, you can't control the media entirely, not yet anyway. We've seen this amazing thing with her, which is it's not just that what she wants to pursue is foolish. It's that her manner of operating tends to throw up spectacular errors. So she's frozen out uh, the parliamentary party. She's frozen out cabinet. Cabinet aren't even being consulted on major policies at the moment. There's no I mean, you know, David Davis is supposedly supposed to be delivering Brexit. Doesn't really have any relationship with her at all, as we understand it. The only relationship she has is with two people in Downing Street. And what's the first thing that happens? I mean, A, that'll just drive you nuts. I mean, you know, Gordon Brown was that same kind of control freak and it drove him completely crazy as well. So you can't, the machinery of government is just too strong. It's too big in order to try and control it at that level. But it does something worse, which is that you don't stress test policies. That (laughs) dementia tax is, if they'd stress tested it in a room for five minutes, if they just sat there going, okay, well, what is the likely media reaction? What is the likely reaction by core conservative voters? They would have come up with exactly what took place. The fact that they didn't suggests it's not being battered around the cabinet table. It's not even really being battered around those three people in Downing Street. And so you get these sort of catastrophic propositions put out, which are doing her serious damage. And I found that absolutely amazing that they hadn't done precisely what you described to think, you know, these are all professional politicians. Why didn't they sit down for five minutes and think, how could our policy be misrepresented or how could it be recast in a different light? What criticisms is it going to face? What can we do in terms of putting... What half a sentence in the manifesto to say subject to a cap? That's all you'd need to put in. 
that, yeah, that gives you yeah. the, 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 the get-out clause that they've now invoked. Why not put that in the manifesto? Quite astonishing. What was fascinating as well, by the way, was the, the, the manner of the U-turn. Because you can U-turn fast and close something down, and that is very often a clever thing to do. But to do so, you need to say what the cap is. If you don't say what the actual cap is, you just U-turn on the existence of a cap. Anyone will tell you the first question a journalist is going to ask, OK, well, what's the cap? And that will just keep on bleeding you day after day after day. So your U-turn and the humiliation of the U-turn continues. You know, as happens, there was the attack, so there was a pause in campaigning. But nevertheless, when we went back to campaigning, it was amazing that we hadn't actually left where we were one week before it lasted that long in the memory. Yeah, I think she's, uh, Theresa May has actually hit sort of downfall of Margaret Thatcher territory really early on. Mm. Now, it was only towards the end, you know, that, that, that Margaret Thatcher got the poll tax so wrong and she didn't realise how it would go down and how much people would hate it. Theresa May is so confident now. She had such a poll lead. She thought, I can say anything and keep this. And she's already got into that mindset that yeah. only she can take the country forward. And that's actually quite scary. It's quite scary. Yeah. So do we know how many talks Theresa May is actually going to be in rather than David Davis? I don't think we do at the moment, but we do know that David Davis is going to be leading on most of the detail and he's going to be in the big con uh, commissions. It's not going to be Theresa May. She's going to be giving the sort of background vibes and she's no doubt going to be feeding a lot into David Davis and, uh, and, and so on. But it is going to be Davis a lot. And, and we haven't, have we seen Davis this election? Has he been out campaigning? I know he's busy. He's got a lot he in his mind. He popped out on the Sunday morning programme. Oh, no, yesterday on the Today programme to say that the government had over 100 pages of detail <laughs> Hundred pages. I know Ooh. they've really used this year wisely. I feel. So it's a small novella, isn't it? Small novella. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, that's sort of partly reassuring to me. I've got to say, I would, I would rather. I think he's he's categorically, you know, uh, quite appalling, and yet. He is far superior to Theresa May. He's far superior to Liam Fox, far superior to Boris Johnson. He seems to be much more on top of the issues than they are. So I'm happy about that in the same way that if Corbyn won, a prospect that is not quite as absurd this week as it was last week, but nevertheless remains pretty laughable, I would much rather that Keir Starmer was in there than Jeremy Corbyn. Keir Starmer has had to make all sorts of compromises. And yet you do feel that he fundamentally grasps the issues and sees the dynamics that are operating as opposed to Jeremy Corbyn, who just seems completely absent. I think David Davis grasps the issues, but I think he's an ideologue on this issue. He's mm. always been, he's long-term neurosceptic. He wants out. And it doesn't matter what we have to go through and what we have to suffer in order to get out. And that's a point of view which does exist in the Conservative Party and it exists in, in UKIP as well. That's why I'm not so happy with David Davis as you are, because I think he would walk out talks. I actually, I'm not sure Theresa May would, but I think David Davis oh, that's would. Interesting. I can see him walking out quite easily because he's a fundamentalist on this issue. Talking of fundamentalists who can do crazy things, it could move <laughs> oh. us on to our next news item of the week, which is about Donald Trump, who apparently is now having misgivings about Brexit. Remember, he said after the vote that it was a beautiful, beautiful thing. Uh, according to sources in Brussels, uh, on his recent visit, he was going around telling the other EU leaders that he's a bit worried now about Brexit because it could be bad for American uh, jobs. You know, the single market, of course, and common regulations and stuff like that across Europe are good for all businesses. Uh, they're good for American businesses coming into Europe if they know that they can do business freely among all the countries and that the same rules apply. And obviously a little tiny shaft of reality has shone upon his, his, his mm. head. Isn't that wonderful for him to, 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 to tell us now that it's not <laughs> such a beautiful thing? He's yes. learning. He's learning all the time. You can see, you know, whatever you might say about Trump, he's learning. Um, so he apparently spoke to the Germans and 10 times asked to do a bilateral trade deal with Germany. <laughs> 10 times obviously has to be told, 
you can't do a bilateral trade deal with any EU member state and you have to do it with the whole of the EU. Now, there's, there's some stuff around, that, that, some sort of rumours that basically his team get this. They know this, but this is their way of trying to put pressure on the EU and just acting as if these rules don't exist and throwing his weight around, which is not a difficult theory to swallow when you imagine the way that he conducts himself just physically, you know, at any international event, pushing himself to the front, that sort of mad psychological breakdown that is his handshake. So all of that seems seems clear. And it's, what fascinates me about this is trying to break down what is just the man-child acting according to his own whims and what is conceivably the political strategy of the slightly cleverer people around him. So we're all lost in this very strange world where we have to you know, try and figure this stuff out. And I personally I have no idea. It could be either way. Maybe it is just the man-child or maybe it's this very clever game of deception where we think it's a man-child, but in actual fact, it's a thought-through strategy. Well, the other interesting question is, let's suppose that Trump, uh, for whatever reason, uh, has it doesn't want to do uh, put Britain at the front of the queue for trade deals, actually decides actually the, the rest of the EU is bigger. Um, I think I can do more business with these guys. And then suddenly for all of the fawning that we got from, let's say, Boris Johnson, uh, when Trump was elected, remember Boris Johnson was saying he was mad and he was completely unsuitable until he was elected and then is yeah. sort of praising him. All that groveling may well get us nowhere, it seems to me. It, Trump will decide, for what, whether, whether rationally or irrationally, he may well decide that actually I'll do a deal with the EU, Britain can wait. They, these guys, we've got, we've got them already kind of uh, attitude. What do you think? Yeah, I think he will. I mean, a lot depends, I think, on how much Britain is prepared to compromise on how much we let... U.S. produce uh, in particular into our markets. Different standards from the EU often in things like medicine, particularly in things like food. It's things like, do you want your chickens chlorine washed? Uh, do you, you know, hormonal treatments, that, that hormonal medicines, that kind of thing. And there's very different standards. And it might turn out that even if we did a deal that allowed a lot more cheap U.S. produce to come into the market, there would be a backlash from consumers, or there might not be. Mm. But it means making certain compromises, um, which I'm not sure whether we're ready to make yet. And I don't think we've even started the, the debate because, the, as you point out, there's a million potential scare stories. Chlorinated chicken doesn't sound very appetising, just to, just to name mm. one of them. And we've just had this assumption from the pro-Brexit side that there's all these wonderful trade deals out there, including with America, as though we're just going to be allowed, the doors will open and we'll be allowed in and the Statue of Liberty will be welcoming. It'll be a tough trade negotiation. We will have to make a lot of compromises, as Ros says. And it will, you know, there, there's also in Britain, there's, all, there's this Eurosceptic strain, clearly, that we, we has got stronger in recent years. We've also had this slight strain of, you know, anti-Americanism, um, particularly on the left in Britain, but also also at times on the right, that, you know, we don't want to be dominated by America. And when, when we have to sit down with the American trade representative and make this tough deal and start to accept things that we don't really want, that strain will come to the fore, I think, more and more. We will say, well, hang on a second, we've we've got out of Europe to become the 51st first state. You know, that's that, the, the, this phrase about the 51st state has been around at least since the 60s, you know, as, as a worry that Britain simply becomes, you know, an aircraft carrier for Europe or a sort of trade out aircraft carrier for America or a trade outpost for America. That's that's a big route to come and there'll be an element of thinking, you know, well, did we get out of Europe just to do this? It's such a sad sort of fact where we, we talk about trade deals like a win or a lose. So the idea is, you know, on the Brexit front, getting a trade deal with America is a win despite any other characteristic it might have. And in actual fact, it's about the way in which you get to a trade deal and the circumstances in which you enter it. 
If we were desperate, crashing out chaotically from from the EU, having lost, you know, access to our largest market, you know, having to pay tariffs on it and having, you know, customs checks, queues at the border, all of that, the real political catastrophe which could follow, we suddenly go into talks with the Americans, we will be politically and economically desperate for a deal. And then what happens is suddenly, yes, you do get a quick deal. And nothing could be more perilous than a quick deal because a quick deal with a larger partner basically means you capitulate it on everything. As you were saying, standards on food, uh, reach on chemical standards, on data protection standards. For instance, uh, a potential attack by the US pharmaceutical uh, lobby, I think, on NICE, on the National Institute for Clinical Excellence in the, in the NHS. These are all things that could very realistically happen if we're too desperate when we enter that negotiating room. If we're in a stable position... With our largest market, we have time, there's no political pressure. A free trade agreement with the US could be very, very beneficial indeed. But if that happens, you would expect it to take about five to seven years. You'd expect that to be a long negotiation. If it isn't, it means something has gone catastrophically wrong. Yeah, exactly. So next up on the news, we have Robo Brexit, (laughs) uh, which is a British robot firm is moving to Madrid. Uh, because of Brexit, maybe not because of Brexit, not entirely clear. Um, anyway, they're called the Shadow Robot Company. It's a London-based firm that produces robotic hands and graspers. Uh, it's one of the longest-running robotics companies in the UK, and it's worked with both NASA and the ESA. Very bad news for British robotics, obviously. I think, you know, what's also quite interesting about this is not just... Lots of people are moving because it's supply parts and tariffs and things like that. The other reason that people will move is because of regulation. And especially in areas like robotics, but I mean, you see it, for instance, in cars, which are very quickly becoming more and more of a tech product rather than anything else. You see people moving because they know the future of regulation is going to be decided in these places in Brussels and in Washington. And if we're not anywhere near Brussels, there's no point being here anymore either. So that's also part of the factors that influence, I think, companies like this when they decide where they're going to set up shop next. So uh, as ever, I want to be a bit of a party pooper and say, let's let's be careful as Remaniacs about jumping on anything that sounds like a little tiny bit of bad economic news to do with Brexit, because that makes it easier for the charge to stick that we're running Britain down, blah, 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 blah. In this case, the, this, the, the company doesn't actually say that it's moving part of its uh, operation to Madrid because of Brexit, but clearly uh, it will have the effect of giving them a footprint inside the continuing EU. And the danger is, my, my worry is all the, lo- the long-term effect of all this stuff, not the short-term stuff of a few jobs moving here and a little bit of this and that moving here and there. Where are we in the long term? The, the great news, the great tech news of the past week or so is SoftBank, the Japanese uh, t- tech giant, uh, setting up a $93 billion fund. The Saudis and all sorts of people are throwing money into it. It's going to be based in London. So we could get the beginnings of a Silicon Valley-type um, sort of financing ecosystem to back all of these tech companies, in particular fintech companies, for instance, that are very strong in London at the moment. The point is that all of these comp- all of these people, the financiers, the tech entrepreneurs, uh, for them, Britain being in the EU is a fantastic advantage that we're about to throw away. That, you know, it makes it, not being in the EU, makes it that little bit easier for Silicon Alley in Berlin to start drawing mm-hmm. these guys away and for people to think, well, maybe actually uh, London isn't the, the best uh, place for, uh, for, for tech companies and tech financiers to be. So it, my worry is the longer-term one, that um, although... This fund is being set up and based in London for now. There are firms like this robot firm that, for whatever reason at the moment, are just taking one little step out of Britain into the EU. And the danger is that in the longer term, that those, those steps increase. Yeah, I worry about London particularly. I think London's had a great 20 years. It's been an incredible place. Um, and it's now getting more and more un- unaffordable. 
It's the uncertainty of Brexit hanging over us. And it may be that London's kind of huge domination of the UK and primary city in Europe is going to come to an end. And maybe it's time, you know, all cities, there are, they change and it's it's time for another place to take over. But it feels unsettling. It feel, I, I, I sense people are beginning to empty out of London more because it's becoming such a difficult place to live. Um, and I think it's going to be a big, big challenge for Sadiq Khan in, in particular. He's got a lot to do if he's going to be an effective mayor uh, in the next few years to try and keep London's momentum. Because it's slowing down, I think. Yeah, and I just find that, I mean, I just find it such a tragic thought. I can't be sanguine about it at all. My love for London is too strong. I've been here for those 20 years of seeing it it change over that period and become sort of a truly global city. And that idea, I mean, it could be somewhere else in Europe. I get that. I I, I see that it could be a Madrid or a Paris, but I don't see the dynamism in those cities. And I don't see the essential liberal way of looking at life, of coexistence that you have in London that makes it such a successful experiment. And I worry very much not just what happens to Britain if London starts to decline, but also just what happens to our ideas about how to do multiculturalism, how to do liberalism, how to do sort of open societies. I feel like that could go into decline alongside London. Well, that's a good uh, moment at which to wrap up our Brexit news. So let's go on now to uh, the question of what was your biggest election Brexit moment so far? Yes, well, I think uh, for me, it's still got to... I've got to go back a couple of weeks, really. I've got to go to Theresa May walking out of Downing Street and saying that the Europeans were trying to subvert our election. And I can't... I'm trying to... You know, I'm not going to lie. Like, I try to, especially on Twitter, I try to contain my anger on a a daily basis, actually. And I totally, I totally failed. Like, I just... It was the the two hours after that. It was that thing that you have in these sort of bursts after Brexit, just this deep sense of shame, of patriotic shame, to be honest, of just seeing your prime minister in something that you know will be seen around the world, and the world pays more attention to this stuff than we, than we r- realise, talking like some kind of pound-shop Trump lunatic, <laughs> badgering on about, you know, <laughs> Europeans trying to... to but, but by, by leaking to a German newspaper. <laughs> in, it was the most preposterous nonsense. And then seeing, you know, about a third of my journalistic colleagues go with it. I mean, uh, most of them didn't, even the ones, you know, in the sun, and they, even those guys mostly kept their heads. But seeing some of them go for it just absolutely killed me it just seemed to mark this intellectual and moral decline as a nation not that i want to get too soapbox about this of course you understand and also of course in the more practical terms makes what happens after the election much much harder because that's what turns what should be rational negotiations into a much more toxic poisonous attitude and one in which we're suddenly the bad guys all of a sudden and i don't really enjoy thinking of my country as the bad guy yeah, it's, and it's you know that you you hit the nail on the head there that it, it it all makes it harder for us to sit down at the talks and say, all right, let's now be rational about all of this. For me, there hasn't been a Brexit moment. You know, I keep looking for a Brexit moment, and there hasn't really been one. Okay, there was that. Yeah, I agree. Terrifying moment, but nobody is talking in any detail about Brexit, and. You know, you watch you watch the party leaders being interrogated and, you know, Corbyn isn't quite sure sometimes about his policy and how much it's going to cost or Diane Abbott or whatever. But it's all domestic stuff. Brexit is not an issue in this election because, as we all know, Brexit means Brexit. The Labour Party agree Brexit means Brexit. And so we can't talk about it anymore because that would be to, to subdue the will of the British people. And everybody is taking this for granted. And as a result... They've moved towards domestic issues. And so it's been a really frustrating uh, election for me because I really hoped that someone would manage to extract a bit more detail from Theresa May on what her plan is. 
but they haven't. No, there's not been much real effort, has there? No. So, you know, there's there's, there's a little bit in the manifesto about you know we do want to continue cooperating on policing and stuff like that. But again, like a few more questions on that to say, yeah. well, you know, can't you go into the the, the negotiations with some specific uh, proposals to improve cooperation on the good stuff that we like, as you know, such as policing, anti-terrorism, and so on? But nobody's really tried to put those points. Yeah. I mean, what what kills me is now. I mean, and then this has gone down to proper kindergarten level now. The words good and bad, the words good and bad. So, you know, Theresa May, for instance, you know, no deal is better than a bad deal. No journalist. This is extraordinary to me. It seems to actually be willing to ask, what, what do you mean by bad? You know, what is included in bad? Do you mean EU citizens' rights? Do you mean the budget? Do you mean our regulations for the way that planes crisscross in the sky? There seems to be no technical or detailed understanding by most broadcast journalists. So they're not asking the questions of politicians. And then you get this extraordinary situation. The interview yesterday with Channel 5 News, Theresa May. She says, basically, it's all about my plan. I'm asking you to vote for me for my plan because I've got a plan for Brexit and Jeremy Corbyn doesn't. Nobody says, what is the plan? That question doesn't come up. So instead, what is being asked is this almost religious proposition. It's basically, vote for me on the basis of the plan. What is the plan, Prime Minister? I'm not going to tell you. It's tulip mania. Remember tulip mania in the 17th century where uh, you were asked to put your money into some great enterprise, no one to know what it is. (laughs) (laughs) This is very dispiriting. I mean, this is... And again, you know, you can't go too far with the sort of the comparisons to tyrants or whatever. But ultimately, what tyrants do is say, put your trust in me as a human being. It's not about the policies I'm putting forward. It's not about the details. Put your trust in me. I represent the people's will. And that is basically what is happening now. Some kind of diluted Robinson's version of tyranny. And this is a very, very depressing spectacle. And I see no questioning at all from the broadcast media. Of course, I get it from the press because they have their own acts to grind. I understand that. But from the broadcast media, they need to be doing a better job. And it's up to them. I'm sorry. Ultimately, the responsibility is down to broadcast media to pull her up on this stuff. They are not doing it. So my... um election Brexit moment uh, was this news the other day, uh, the official migration figures from the ONS, uh, National Statistics Agency, showing that net migration from what is often called Eastern Europe, countries like Poland and Hungary actually prefer to be called Central Europe these days, uh, has actually uh, slumped. What's happening is that the numbers of Poles and Lithuanians and Hungarians and so on coming into the country has gone down quite drastically. And the number leaving is uh, rising quite quickly. So there is a danger that the government will hit the migration target the day before the NHS just collapses, basically, (laughs) from a lack of doctors and nurses, and suddenly people will be ringing for their Polish plumber or whatever, and they will not be there and all our houses will fall down. It's it's the department of beware of what you wish for. That, you know, really do we want all these people who are we are depending on for public services, for private services such as construction, all sorts of things. The people who serve you a sandwich in, in, in a sandwich shop in central London, are they English uh, born and bred, as UKIPers would say? Probably they're not. You know, what are we going to do without these people? Do we want to drive them away? The, but depressingly, the, 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 the story was reported as a kind of a straightforward story, but the, it, it, didn't, it didn't catch fire to say, do we really want to do this? Actually, we have, over a very long time, and we'll be talking about long-term migration with Ros a a little later, we've built up our economy on the idea of being an open economy in in having people coming and going. And, you know, I think that's a good thing, personally. Um, It's astonishing that, you know, Theresa May was attacked by George Osborne. Um, They ran a huge, long piece in The Standard, the paper that he now edits, pointing out that... You know, no minister would answer his question on how are we going to get migration 
down? And if we do, how are we going to cope in your department? So he asked the health minister, how is the NHS going to cope without all these doctors and nurses? No reply, no reply, no reply. So hell hath no scorn like an old Bullingdonian scorned, I guess. Yeah, he, his hypocrisy is extraordinary, though. Is that? I mean, he ran, he ran under two elections under that tens of thousands promise. Now he comes up, oh, only a fool would promise this. <laughs> well, I don't know, George. I mean, you've got a pretty good history with it. The only, he should not, you know, I'm still not over my moral despair at the fact that he was given that job. Appalling, you know, an appalling statement to any journalist. I think it doesn't matter what your experience is, doesn't matter what work you do. If you happen to be a chancellor, you'll be able to slip right into the And a friend of the, the proprietor, presumably. <laughs> well, yes, that probably plays a key role as well. So that's all appalling. But I have to say, I'm enjoying how much George Osborne is enjoying it. <laughs> I'm enjoying I, the daily front page attacks on Theresa May. I have to fun. say, I, I'm not, I wasn't. I wasn't that bothered. Everybody was saying, like, "Oh God, it's disgusting." You know, he, he doesn't know. He doesn't know how to sub anything. He doesn't know how to lay out front page. <laughs> yeah, of course he does. I mean, that's not what he was. Th- he's there for. He's basically there to write angry leaders and front pages about what the uh, government's doing about Brexit. And actually, <laughs> I don't mind if there's a if there's a mainstream paper that's criticising Theresa May's position on Brexit. That's okay with me. And I know he can't edit a paper for Toffee, um, but that doesn't bother me terribly because there's always somebody else who does it. I mean, let's say we've both, I'm sure we've both all worked in newspapers. We know how the jobs get divided out. There's somebody who does the kind of, you know, public presence and the big thinking. And then there's, you know, the rest of us. Uh, it, it's... it's, it's <laughs> Yeah, well, and I think that's a very good point. It, you know, it lets, we always try to be optimistic uh, at some point, at least in this podcast, that maybe if uh, under Osborne the standard becomes an intelligent critic from a conservative standpoint of the Brexit process, maybe that will help us to get a slightly better or slightly less terrible Brexit process. I agree. We can and, only hope. And that is good, that is good. But there's also the slight problem of anything that is said isn't in that newspaper is now interpreted as part of George Osborne's attempt to stab Theresa May. So the, the personalization of it sort of detracts from how effective it can be on Brexit. But I agree, look, it's it's clearly already a far superior paper to the one it was before, though that was not difficult. Nevertheless, it still remains sort of morally very difficult for me to accept him in that position, but still fun. <laughs> It's time for a commercial break now. Um, uh, while we hope that you're enjoying Romaniacs, uh, there's more to life than politics. They've put that in the script. I fundamentally disagree. Uh, <laughs> if music, film, TV, books, and the general world of entertainment float your boat, then you may enjoy our sister podcast, Big Mouth, which is also available via the miracle of the internet. And on this week's edition, you can hear our Romaniacs colleague, Dorian Linsky, who's since gone on holiday and hasn't taken us with him, the cruel bastard, <laughs> talking about the new deluxe edition of the Beatles' Sergeant Pepper, plus the return of Twin Peaks and the new album by Saint-Étienne, and, of course, the inevitable Much, Much More. Peter, for a moment there, I almost believed that you knew who Saint-Étienne were. <laughs> <laughs> it's a football team, isn't it? <laughs> uh, well, you can hear Big Mouth at audioboom.com forward slash channel forward slash Big Mouth or subscribe to the iTunes Music Store. It's exactly what you need after a hard day of thinking about the single European sausage. Uh, which brings us back to our special guest, the journalist and editor of LSE Brexit Blogs, Roz Taylor. Are you enjoying this show so far? I'm loving it. It's great. It's great to be, it's great to be just open about the fact that I'm a, a Remainer. And, you know, that, that, that's quite enjoyable. I mean, so let's, let's continue. This is a sharing space. It's a sharing space. I feel comfortable. So part, part of the reason that we set this up was we wanted to talk about details. We want to talk about the reality of what's going to happen over the next few years. Mm-hmm. If you were to pick one thing, rather difficult question, I know, but if you were to pick one thing that you think has been fundamentally misunderstood by the public that could really use an airing and that you'd like it if people tried to understand, what would it be? I think it would be migration, to bring it back to that, because... 
people haven't really thought about it much. And one of the things that I did respect the Leave campaign for saying was that we had never actually had a public discussion about immigration. Then suddenly we had a public discussion that never ended about immigration. But the fact is that back in 2004, Tony Blair took the decision to be one of the three countries in the EU that was going to let Eastern Europeans, uh, Central Europeans, uh, come to uh, Britain to work freely because in the rest of the EU they had to wait longer. So they couldn't go to France and Spain and so on immediately. That was quite a big decision and it went pretty much unnoticed at the time. And for years and years, you know, Poles and uh, uh, other Eastern Europeans started coming over and there wasn't much of a discussion about it. And people didn't think about what these people were really doing, what contribution they were making. There was this Polish plumber thing and, oh, I've got this great guy who can do me, you know, he did my bathroom in a day, blah, blah, blah. But we didn't realise the whole range of, of uh, you know, public service jobs and vital jobs that Eastern Europeans were doing and where they were living and the impact their presence was, ha- was having. You know, It wasn't until the 2001 census, to be a bit kind of nerdy about it, that we actually knew where these people were living because we could find out what their backgrounds were. Um, Um, 2011, sorry, not 2001, 2011 census. And then we had an idea that there were big, big concentrations in places like East Anglia, sometimes up to 30% of the population were Eastern European. Places like Boston, which is a very, very big UKIP area as a result. And we hadn't realised that this was going to have a huge effect on some areas of Britain. So that is something that I think people have not thought about. They haven't thought about why they want people to come to this country and what jobs they want people to be doing. It's kind of been a ta- it has been a taboo subject until the last few years. Where do you come down on this sort of economic versus culture thing? Like every time I put out an economic argument for immigration on, on Twitter, uh, people come around, usually researchers, often pollsters, usually quite sympathetic, and but saying, you know, this is not where the debate is run. This is ultimately when you get to the heart of things. This is a cultural wariness of people feeling their culture is being diluted or being lost to them. And if you just talk about economics, you'll never really be able to address things. You'll never really be able to change the debate. Do you agree with that? Yeah, I do, actually. Um, I think that uh, there was a failure to understand that people weren't going to be pretty shocked when a lot of Eastern Europeans came, particularly in poorer areas, and took low-paying jobs that they didn't necessarily want themselves, but these people were doing them for much, much, you know, for much lower wages. That was bound to have an impact. And so the argument is partly economic because it mixes with the cultural. You know, you see you see these, these, these people here and you think uh, they're speaking a different language. I kind of know what jobs they're doing. How much are they getting paid? I'm not sure. I'm sure it's less than me um, and they'll do it they'll do this this job for so little money so the, these issues all blend and in an atmosphere of austerity background as well where you're being told and you know that things are being cut that benefits are being cut that you see strains on the NHS even if the economists can show you that overall the benefit of immigration is net positive when you actually break down those figures and look at the impact of uh, difference between skilled and unskilled workers then you see where the problems start the skilled workers are not the problem because they pay high taxes as well um, and the unskilled uh, workers who a lot of them frankly who some some of the people being brought in by gang masters i very much doubt were paying taxes at all um let's be honest about that because there's a lot of people in britain who avoid taxes themselves sometimes legally sometimes not so there's a whole black economy going on that people resented and i get that 
Um, I think I think you resent that on a cultural level because the cult, uh, culture and economy mix in issues like the uh, NHS. Because we didn't have the debates uh, at the time the decision was made not to apply a sort of phasing in, if you like, of the, of, of the migration, we didn't have people saying, well, how are we planning for this? You know, we don't have a very good... Uh, planning system for changes in demand on public services. The classic example is that a school suddenly finds it's got 34 Polish pupils or or even pupils from another part of Britain because that some council has decided to change its policy for sending um, homeless people or refugees to, to that council's area without the education department being knowing and without the education department telling the local schools. We should have had a debate on on what are we going to do, you know, that we could actually make a lot of positive use of all these new people who, who are coming into the country. We could use them to revitalise areas of the country that are are sort of, you know, have been in decline. If they bring new skills, that they bring their labour or whatever, we can we can make it, make a, a good thing out of this. But we need to plan. There will be doctors and nurses among them, but there will also be patients among them. So we need to plan to recruit the doctors and nurses and make sure that the services are there for the extra patients and the extra pupils. We didn't do any of that. It was all just yeah. a terrible mess because, as you say, there wasn't the proper debate about it at the time. Yeah, and there was actually a fund that was set up by the Labour government to uh, be aimed at areas like Boston that were having this huge change and it just didn't happen didn't happen so yes I think it's a that's a huge failure um, on the part of uh, the end of the Labour government as well as um, the um, coalition government now you also had a uh, democratic audit.com for, for the LSE and I sort of wanted to talk to you really about this extraordinary sort of impact of a referendum in a society who conducts its democratic structures in a completely different sort of way yeah it, it feels so i mean part of this thing that we talk about the will of the people is 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 a phrase that you've never heard of really previously in britain it always reminded me of tim pot dictatorship somewhere i just thought brits would never speak in this way mm-hmm. and worse than that even the whole get over it argument sort of suggests that one only ever makes democratic decision once we're used to the idea that every four years you get to change your mind. I mean, it is, it's quite an extraordinary moment, really, for sort of British democratic culture, I suppose. Yeah, it was, because we'd had the odd referendum and decision. I mean, you might remember years ago there was the decision, uh, the one that the Lib Dems instituted on whether we should have a different uh, form of electoral system. I can't remember what turnout was for that. I think it was about 24%. Something. Anyway, um, but it, let's say it didn't set the country alight um, and it didn't change anything. So this referendum was a bit of a defining moment because we hadn't had... Since the 75 referendum, we hadn't had that kind of direct democracy. And this is really what Britain is struggling with, because generally we say that our MPs are there to, yes, represent us and solve some of our problems, but ultimately to make decisions on our behalf, because they know more than we do about a lot of things, and also their parties tell them what to do. And then suddenly there was a chance to make a decision on something of huge, huge importance, Um And that was something we were pretty much unfamiliar with doing because, you know, not not many people remember 75 now. And even then, it wasn't much of a campaign. It, you know, the the, most people, I think it was a two thirds majority voted to to join the uh, economic community as it then was. So we haven't got our heads around this. And to give a referendum label, a label like will of the people, is very, very dubious when you consider all the forces that were at play. And people, I understand, don't want to be told that they were lied to. They don't want to hear that 
there was large, large amounts of money going into particular kinds of advertising to influence them online. They don't want to think that they made the wrong decision because they were fooled. And I'm not saying, you know, some people were not fooled. Plenty of people want to leave the EU on um, for, you know, for, for their own reasons. They don't believe in the idea of a federal Europe. And there were others who were swayed by domestic arguments which had nothing fundamentally to do with the EU. So, yeah, we are really, really struggling with this. And I think it's something that we will continue to struggle with. And I think the government will think for a long time before it has another referendum. But do you, do you think there's going to be pressure for demands for more referendums? And we end up like California or somewhere where the people are always having propositions saying we want the government to spend money on something, but we also want the government to cut taxes, which, you know, just makes mm. an impossible situation. Is there a danger that we, it becomes like an addictive drug? I doubt it, because honestly, do you feel addicted? I don't feel addicted. Yeah. I, I We'd feel like to think I, we're sensible yeah. people. Yeah. <laughs> I never want to see another referendum as long as I live. Unless yeah. there's another one about the EU, in which yeah. case I might agree. No, I don't think there's the appetite no, for a I'm glad I, to hear that. Yeah. You know what's extraordinary about it was, you know, especially the way that sort of political journalists and the lobby, we had all of these associations of how elections work, and we applied it to a referendum. And it turns out that doesn't work at all. So you take leave. Leave split into two camps at the beginning. And everything in your history tells you Divided parties don't win an election, therefore a divided campaign will be catastrophic. In actual fact, what happened was it was it managed to put two different retail propositions to people. On the one hand, you got the Faragist, let's just close everything down, go back to the 1970s. On the other hand, you had the more respectable sort of leave thing typified by, you know, Michael Gove and Boris, and, and Boris Johnson. And so actually that covered a much broader spectrum than if they'd just been consolidated into one message. So even on that basis, everything about the referendum dynamic was completely startling and new to people who are just used to standard issue British democracy. Yeah, um, absolutely. I think it's. Uh, I think it was, and the fact, as you say, that you had this one-two where you had Farage, who appeals to a certain kind of um, existing UKIP supporter, who's uh, very patriotic often, uh, who has strong views about immigration, and then you had Boris and Gove. Um, well, I wouldn't say Gove necessarily made much of an impact in the campaign, but Boris Johnson was appealing to a much wider. A broader spectrum of people who think that if if you know if he is a clever guy, if he's going along with it, then it will be okay. It's not a mad thing. Mm. It's not what David Cameron called you know nutters and fruitcakes. I think when he was talking about UKIP a few years ago, it's mainstream politicians who are saying it's going to be okay. Mm. So let's move on to our next topic, which is uh, basically going back to an aspect of migration, a very important one. That I want one of the most interesting items on your blog was this item by Colin Yeo about there's a sort of concept that we have in our heads that freedom of movement is this terribly wicked modern thing but actually it's not uh, the case at all that restricted movement is the unusual situation can you explain what does what does he show in this blog post about the history of freedom of movement yeah he basically says that there was quite a short period in the middle of the 20th century i think it's 1963 to 72 um, mike got those dates slightly wrong but i think that's right which he calls the interregnum and that is when there was no longer freedom of movement into Britain from Britain's former colonies. Because, uh, as we know, there was a big movement of people to fill jobs in the late 50s, early 60s. In the early 60s, the government started cracking down on that, restricting who could come here. Then we joined the uh, economic community in 72, and freedom of movement moved. That, that added a different dimension. So there was this short period when people couldn't move freely. And what he really shows is how 
difficult it is if you are not uh, European now and in future, even if you are European, how difficult it is to get the right to stay. It costs you an awful lot in application fees to the Home Office. It costs you a lot in uh, lawyer's fees often. And in total, it costs about six to seven thousand pounds at the moment, and that will almost certainly go up to get your British citizenship. And that's if you get it. Otherwise, you're just throwing away the money. You haven't Indeed. got any guarantee. As someone with a, a non-British partner, we're looking forward to paying all of those fees and all those lawyers <laughs> in the next year or so. And the, and the point is, it's so important. It's worth repeating and stressing that, you know, going back in time. We didn't even have passports at one point, did, did we? We know you just yeah. came came and went, basically, right. in the yeah. kind of days of Sherlock Holmes or whatever. Uh, we had the British Empire, lots of people coming and going. Uh, we had the government saying in, was it 1949, the Royal Commission that said, we need to bring in more foreign people of good stock. We should <laughs> welcome them without reserve. Um, and even Enoch Powell... Enoch Powell, when he was health minister in the early 60s, welcoming in people, doctors and nurses, asking doctors and nurses from Pakistan and what's now Bangladesh, please come here, we need you. Uh, This is some years before the famous uh, Rivers of Blood speech. So, you know, we we were welcoming all these people in. Suddenly it's all, the, the shutters come down and they stay down until we join the European Union and then they're opened on one side. So the point is that this sort of, you know, it's it's not true that Britain has been this fortress. There is this myth put about that you know so we've we've managed without all these people for so long. No, we haven't. We've actually been we've we've in as much as we've succeeded, we've succeeded as an open society. We shouldn't mm. forget that. Yeah. I, I love this thing that Colin Yao brought up about the spousal visas in that mm. article. The spousal visas is something that people almost never talk about. And you talk to most Brits, you bring this thing up. They're usually aghast, even when they're quite sceptical about immigration, because they didn't realise immigration rules affect them too. And they really do affect them too. Because if you earn less than £18,600, which if you don't live in the south of England is actually pretty common, you are not able to bring over a foreign spouse from outside of the EU. We presume that after Brexit that would include the EU as well. I've spoken, I've done countless interviews on this, because this is really, I mean, even just on a basic liberal level, this is a government so small it can fit in your bedroom stuff. I mean, you know, you speak to usually couples, say, I mean, the first person I ever spoke to about this was married to his Chinese wife, he had two kids in China, they came home, suddenly that's six months that he can't bring the wife home because he has to show that many pay slips when he's got a job at that level, and he's someone lucky enough who could get a job at that level. His kids were calling his wife, Skype mummy, because the only context in which I'd seen her for months was on a, a laptop screen. This kind of thing has been going on for ages. And what's frustrating in the immigration debate to me is, is the fact that people keep, keep on going on about, oh, there's been no controls and we're not allowed to go out. I just think, well, you know what? All I see is people whose lives are being savaged by really draconian immigration policies while being simultaneously told there's no control over immigration. It's enough to drive me mad. And I was very, very, I was very, very happy that Colin was bringing it up. Not least that, but also, again, the cost of trying to secure that spousal visa, I think he added up to about £7,200 without lawyers' fees. And these are all, again, going to get ratcheted up if the Tories are re-elected. It's a good point at which to move on to our final topic, which is the fact that, well, maybe this will be the last time, sadly, that we will see UKIP as a force in, in British elections. They've gone down from, what, 12.6% at the last election to something right, like 5% in the polls now. Maybe it's not surprising, given that uh, what they were set up for, take Britain out of the EU, is precisely what the Conservative Party is promising. But 
we, we ought to be realising that, of course, there is more to UKIP than just Brexit. There's lots, so much exciting stuff, don't you think? Yeah, no, absolutely. I can't tell you how difficult it is to contain my excitement. Um, <laughs> so, I mean, what have we, have we found anything? Other well, than Brexit well, for instance, the they're promising a ban on all face coverings, but they have a picture in the manifesto of a, a beekeeper in his full kit. Uh, you're tempted to think, is it, are they saying vote UKIP and get stung? But actually, I think what they're trying to say is that, look, beekeepers show their faces and they've got bees to, do, to contend with. <laughs> Even more absurd is this idea that they're wanting to ban the burqa in public, not out of any sort of racist sort of thing, but because Muslim women are not getting enough vitamin D. They're not getting enough sunlight. That's the real reason. I don't doubt their concern about that at all. Indeed. Yeah. There's, if you, again, there's so much stuff in the manifesto. They're going to build a hospital ship called a Nosh, like MASH, you know. It's a naval ocean-going surgical hospital. They're going to introduce a new tag to identify foreign cars as they're driven into Britain. They don't seem to realise that they have a registration number that (laughs) performs that. Uh, And there's going to be a new Brexit Day holiday on the 23rd of June, which I think we'll end up calling, Oh God, What Have We Done Day? (laughs) Tell them about the space mining. Indeed, yeah. No, I mean, I read about it. This is in BuzzFeed, wasn't it? So what's his name? It's um, Aidan Paulusland. Aidan, if I've said your name wrong, then <laughs> don't, don't bother toss. rounding it. Yeah, I mean, really, we don't care. Um, he's standing for UKIP in South Suffolk, uh, and he sees Britain's future in, in asteroid mining. And he only wants to invest a small 100 million quid in an interstellar colony ship design. And look, I'm not going to apologise because the, the, the phrase nanoprobe is coming up in the script. And I just I can't say it properly. So just just ignore me on that one. So there's another 30 million put aside for an interstellar nanoprobe. <laughs> OK, with a yeah, whatever, with a fleet design and, and a view. What's even... It's for precious metals, isn't yeah, it? Yeah, so you go, out to the, to you, you go out yeah. to the asteroids and you explore for precious metals. I think it's an excellent next job for Paul Nuttall, actually. Um, <laughs> and if th- those like me who are big fans of Blake 7 will recognise that this is essentially a remake of Series 2, Episode 4, in which Blake and his crew discover that the, <laughs> the evil federation, led by this leader called Servalan, who promises to be strong and stable, but let's leave that aside for a moment, the evil federation is conducting a secret mining operation on a mysterious planet called Horizon. So there you go. They've, they've, they're all Blake 7 fans and they want to remake s- Series 2 episodes. It's very good of them. I want to bring up Robert Hall Palmer, who is um, well, he's a UKIP candidate for Nottingham East and he is also the most unspeakable dimwit. So uh, he <laughs> wants to replace the bow and arrow on the Robin Hood statue with bronze rather than steel. Now, where I want to really raise this is his leaflet, his campaign leaflet, is one of the most appallingly worded bits of nonsense I've seen for some time. And what concerns me about this is why is it that immigration, anti-immigration people are always so bad at spelling and grammar and basically so fundamentally ill at ease with speaking English. His statement goes like this. The statue of Robin Hood was donated by the Clay family, full stop. The bow and arrow were often being broken off, comma. My family legend goes my grandfather, acting for the Clays, came up with the idea of replacing the lower section of the bow and arrow in steel, full stop. The sun used to shine on this, although it has recently been painted. This is his actual campaign leaflet, by the way. It's like the ravings of a lunatic. I would remove the upper bronze half and replace it with steel to complete and balance the statue. (laughs) And then this is the kicker. This is my favourite part. This is the sort of common sense I would apply to all problems in the constituency to bring improvement. So what do you think, Roz? I mean, they've got so much more, haven't they? 
to offer us. Yeah, yeah. I, I think that's going to clinch the Brexit negotiations for us, frankly, isn't it? I mean, uh... <laughs> so anyway, we're coming to the end of the show at this point. First of all, besides saying thank you very much to Ros for, for joining us and enlightening us and adding to the, the, the reasons to believe in remaining in the EU, it's our reason to be cheerful bit of the show that we've put at the end and it's Ian's turn this week over to you it is I've actually felt pretty upbeat this week on the basis that the coverage of Theresa this is a pretty broad reason to be cheerful the coverage of Theresa May has finally started to tally with the Theresa May that I've been seeing over the last 12 months previously it was just spectacular error after spectacular error after spectacular error surrounded by fawning coverage now finally it seems that the coverage has caught up with her basic intellectual, moral and strategic abilities. That's just to say, she is utterly useless. And so really, finally, I feel like there is at least some sort of reflection of reality in the press, even if it's not really on Brexit at the moment. It's actually on, you know, how she's conducted herself over the dementia tax. And yet you can finally hear at the very beginning, softly, those little voices in the commentariat going, well, hang on a minute. I mean, if she did this badly over this, if she can't even win against Corbyn easily, then what's it going to be like when she goes to Brussels? And that, depressing as it is, is nevertheless the most cheerful thing I've had this week. Would you agree with that, Ros? Yeah, yeah, that's you're right. That's pretty heartening. I mean, I, I think <laughs> on the other hand, what, what, uh, not to drag down the cheerfulness level, but, but um, you know, I remember a colleague saying that, uh, of mine saying that he'd never known a subject on which, when it came to Theresa May and the Daily Mail, she didn't bow to the will of the Daily Mail. Mm, yeah. And that makes me worried. It makes me very worried. Indeed, yeah. And that's it. I mean, when you see people going on about, well, she's, now well, she has a bigger majority, she'll be able to deliver a softer Brexit, you think, well, yeah, but no one's changing the Daily Mail's majority. That one seems pretty sturdy, and that does seem to be the one that she responds to. Exactly, yeah. Well, thank you, because we almost ended on a happy note there, but now you've managed to correct that very aggressively. You won't be advising me that, will you? No. <laughs> Sorry about that. Okay, so thank you very much indeed for listening. That is the end of our second show. Uh, I am Ian Dunt, and you can follow me on Twitter at, at Ian Dunt. And I'm Peter Collins. I'm not on Twitter, so stick that up your social media. But you can follow us as a whole. <laughs> follow the show. Uh, we're on Twitter together as at RomaniacsCast. You can also subscribe to the show in the podcast section of the iTunes Music Store. Just search for Remaniacs. And you can listen again and download at Audioboom slash channel slash Remaniacs. Uh, we hope you've enjoyed the show. If so, please tell your friends and family and share the links. It is indeed the only way that we're going to get out of this mess. And it makes us feel a little bit less like we're just a bunch of people sat in the room in utter despair. So thanks again for listening. You'll see us next week for a post-election, post-mortem. Until then, I can never really say this, but I'm going to give it a shot. Off we descend, pets. Nice.